You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham at the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. It's the morning after the night before. I just pulled a late shift watching a combative United Nations hearing in which a host of member states traded jabs with China about allowing inspectors into Xinjiang to assess the human rights situation on the ground there. It was a testy 90 minutes. We'll bring you a couple of audio bites from that at the top of the show before I get into the meat of it with John Carter who's flying solo this week with Zhou Xin on holiday. We'll also talk some of the key details of China's once-in-a-decade census which came out this week and which we previewed at length a couple of episodes ago. This was a highly sensitive, closely guarded process. The preamble was long, but the fallout may be even longer. John and I will chew over some of the economic ramifications of that as well as some chatter about US-China supply chains and how their joined-up nature may be behind the latest spikes in inflation on both sides. In the second half of the show, I'll be joined by Simone McCarthy from the China Desk and Marsha Borak, a reporter on our technology desk, to discuss a couple of different angles to the India coronavirus story. Simone this week sat down with the Indian Consul General in Hong Kong to find out what's going on with China's supply of medical goods to India, while Masha has been closely tracking companies like Apple's and Foxconn's efforts to diversify their supply chains out of China and partly into India. Plenty to get through on this balmy Hong Kong afternoon. Let's get to it. I'm here with John Carter this morning. Joe Shin has taken the day off, so it's just the two of us. Before we kick off, here's a wee taste of what happened at the United Nations late last night. There was a virtual hearing called by the delegations of the United States, Great Britain and Germany, joined by a host of other countries calling for immediate, meaningful and unfettered access to Xinjiang for the UN's human rights chief. We're here today to discuss these issues and to ask China to allow immediate meaningful and unfettered access to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and her office. To prevent her access asks the question, why? We will keep standing up and speaking out until China's government stops its crimes against humanity and the genocide of Uyghurs and other minorities in Xinjiang. Will we encourage the UN High Commissioner while she engages in endless negotiations for unfettered access to Xinjiang, to begin publishing her findings now. She can do that based on remote monitoring, as her office has done for Myanmar and North Korea. And we will now give the floor to the representative from China. Good morning. Now, time for truth. First, I make it clear that China is here to tell the truth. It doesn't mean in any way we recognize this event. So-called genocide, forced labor, systematic rape and torture in Xinjiang are lies of the century. John, nothing necessarily incredibly new here. We've heard a lot of these um, statements before, both the accusations and the denials from the Chinese. But it does seem to be another step along the way in this thing coming to a head. No, and this is the issue. Is is pressure building on China? Um, As you noted in our conversation earlier, the Chinese are increasingly being... uh, uh, aggressive in denying anything wrong is going on in Xinjiang. And uh, these denials are seemingly falling on deaf ears now. And so the question is, what comes next? Uh, the, the whole question, um, will this 
lead to f- further calls for a boycott of the Winter Olympics n- in February next year or not. Uh, there are lots of potential consequences here. It came in the same uh, day that we had a U.S. Uh, annual state report uh, saying that China criminalizes re- religious expression, um, calling Xinjiang uh, an open prison. Um, quite strongly worded stuff. We're not really surprised to hear that from the United States. But one thing I took away from the event that I covered live last night was the, the language coming from countries like Germany and Turkey not the most forceful in terms of their usual criticisms of China. We had the German ambassador to the UN, Christoph Huysgen, say that uh, we appeal to China to respect the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We asked China to tear down the detention camps. We had the Turkish representative um, asking for or backing the resolution calling for immediate, meaningful and unfettered access to Xinjiang. So, it's led by the United States, of course, but the Germans are involved, the Turkish are involved, so it's Getting a bit more broad, John. In perhaps you could argue that perhaps Biden is being somewhat successful in, in creating his uh, alliances uh, in opposition to China. But uh, with regard to the Germans, this is uh, a remarkable turn of events. Uh, it shows that Angela Merkel is leaving the global stage. She was a big defender of Germany's relationship with China, in large part because uh, German industry exports a lot to China. Um, and, and now you have uh, election realities in Germany where the Green Party is, is very popular and they've been very uh, critical of, of China's practices. And now the uh, uh, CDU party, uh, Merkel's party, uh, uh, which is uh, running again, trying to maintain its, uh, its uh, control of the government, is having to move towards that position in order to get voters to vote for them. Mm. And this is changing the landscape in Europe and uh, in the world, at least in the developed world, um, uh, towards China and uh, their actions in Xinjiang. Mm. Conversations I've been having in, in reporting on uh, the German political situation towards China um, say that while Merkel has sort of maintained her her position, other uh, politicians who aren't leaving office or who are looking to, to enter office in September and when the election is uh, have no option but to shift on China because the geopolitical ground has moved beneath their feet. Uh, these are seismic changes, and while Merkel may be able to put her fingers in her ear, these these <laughs> other politicians can't ignore the the sort of swell of uh, public sentiment about China. But remember, there's still some divergence here. I mean, we're talking about the developed world, Europe, America, uh, and like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas the developed world is much more um, supportive of China, in part because of the Belt and Road Initiative and the aid that China has given these countries. Also, the vaccine diplomacy. Um, so China is not necessarily backed into a corner by all the nations of the world. But it does seem like the developing world is coalescing around a position that China needs to do something to open up about Xinjiang and let people get a close look. Yeah, indeed. And uh, just a, a further piece of detail on this um, this UN story. Um, China, as reported by Reuters last week, the, it had sent around a note to, to member states requesting their mission do not 
participate in this anti-China event. Um, there was a dramatic uh, intervention or interjection staged by the Chinese delegation um, last night, um, at which they said this is the lie of the century. So there's no suggestion that China is going to be swayed by any of this. I mean, they're not really uh, just going to throw open the doors to UN inspectors. No UN uh, human rights commissioner has visited China since September 2005, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. No, it doesn't look like it. And this increasingly aggressive Chinese response to this, um, the question is, will it backfire or will it simply isolate China? And China has already started to move towards self-isolation. The whole dual circulation economic strategy mm -hmm. is based on self-reliance for the economy, for economic and uh, technological innovation. And it, again, the proposition un, the underlying that is that uh, the world needs China as much, if not more, than China needs the world. Mm. Biggest consumer market in the world. Yes, billion consumers or more. Speaking of billion consumers, <laughs> let's talk about nice the census. <laughs> <laughs> so we had uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Joshin very eloquently describing the sensitivity of China's census and the importance of the census. The importance of the census. Um, the number went up. Uh, China's population is officially still growing. Uh, however, the birth rate has dropped uh, significantly. Um, but we wanted to, to maybe point out three of the um, the trends within the, the data that you might not have seen elsewhere. Uh, one, John, is urbanization continued apace. Second one I wanted to, to mention was hauling out of the Rust Belt. And the third is an increasingly aging population. All three are huge concerns for the Chinese government, things that they've been trying to address for, for many years, but they don't seem to be improving. Well, these are the biggest challenges facing China in the outlook for the Chinese economy. Can China overcome these um, um, hurdles and, and uh, allow its economy to continue on its path towards becoming a developed economy? Um, let's take them in turn. The first one is urbanization. Um, that is the Chinese government's official policy. Bring people from the countryside to the cities, get them better jobs, more income, create a huge middle class that uh, will be self-sustaining, will support Chinese manufacturers. They don't have to export so much, they can sell at home. Uh, the problem with this is living in the city is more expensive. And so one of the main reasons, if not the main reason cited for not having kids is the cost. And so if it's too expensive to have kids, you may only have one, where now you're allowed to have two, but that two-child policy that was introduced in 2016 had a couple years of effects. The birth rate went up uh, as the, if you will, backlog of women wanting to have a second child uh, was, was worked through. But after that, starting in 2008, the birth rate began to decline again. So China has to re-examine its whole birth control policy, among other things. And some of this is down to urbanization and what can they do. The experts we talk to say, in addition to loosening up the number of children that Chinese can have, you also need to start subsidizing childcare, um, allowing uh, women to uh, be able to both maintain their careers, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of these women are now educated, they want to be in the workforce, they want to be pursuing careers. You need to uh, account for this, and the way to do that is to create childcare, but that costs money. And so that's the big rub. Yeah. Uh, the experts say, uh, yes, loosen the birth control, but without financial subsidies, 
you aren't going to get the population to start increasing. Yeah. Meanwhile, while all these people are moving to the city, sort of left behind regions, uh, one of which is the sort of north northeasterly provinces uh, known as the Rust Belt. Um, previously industrial heartlands, which have, have really suffered as a result of urbanization. Yeah, no, the, the, the three Rust Belt provinces in the northeast um, were the, the center of Chinese manufacturing back in the 50s. This, was, you know, uh, this is where China's industrial revolution started, but it was very state-run. And uh, starting in the 1980s, uh, that state-controlled economy was slowly dismantled, and, and the Rust Belt never fully recovered. And so a lot of, of uh, the talented people from the Northeast have been migrating south. There's a, a story of a, 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 um, an auto factory in Zhejiang province in the, in the eastern, just south of Shanghai, where everyone in the factory had accents from North China because they had all moved south. Mm. Uh, and this is a big problem is how do you stop this brain drain from the Northeast? And the Beijing has been throwing money at the problem for years, and as of yet, they haven't been able to stop it. Mm. Um, this is a story that's um, familiar to many people around the world. Obviously, you're American, not dissimilar to what happened in the sort of Midwest, Appalachian areas. Ohio, Pennsylvania, yeah. after the Vietnam War, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's... Um, and part those parts, parts of those, uh, those cities, Youngstown, Ohio, for instance, is still very depressed, um, you know, all this time later, um, it's, it, it takes years and lots of government support in order to change things. And the final one is, is of course, um, another story which will be familiar to, to listeners elsewhere, an aging population. Obviously, we see this in Europe. We see it in, in places like Japan and Korea. In China, it's, it's perhaps more perilous than, than these other places, John, arguably because of the, the birth control policies they've had in the past. Well, the, the big challenge here is, uh, is how do you pay for the retirement of all these people? You get older, you need more health care, that's expensive. Um, and, and, you know, the pensions that the government has, they're not huge, but they're, you know, they have to be financed. And your labor force is declining, and so you have fewer people earning the money that is taxed to pay for these pensions. And and then you have more people retiring. Uh, now the the government is um, trying to address this in several ways. They're trying to. They've already said that they will gradually raise the retirement age. Um, this, of course, is very controversial because people have planned their lives around. I'm going to retire at this age, yeah. and uh, so it's uh, quite unpopular. But it's necessary. It's very much like the Social Security argument in the United States. People want to get their money because they they've paid into the system. They want to get it out when they when they retire. And so they don't, don't want to be told you have to retire later in order to get your money. Yeah. Um, um, but at the same time, the government is pushing private pensions because they figure that this will help solve the problem, at least for the more well-to-do, the middle class. Mm-hmm. And we'll see. That's very, progress on that front is very slow uh, because, again, it's a money issue. Where does the money come from? Um, so... Uh, this is a major problem. Um, the older your society gets, the less it consumes in general. It, or Certainly the consumption changes from I'm going to buy a new house, I'm going to buy a new car, to I need to go into a nursing home or I need more health care. Mm. Um, but generally the big ticket items that you buy in your life are early in your life. And, and later in your life you, you uh, live off the earnings from those 
early yeah, yeah. purchases. So this, this is a challenge for China, and it's a challenge for Japan already, for Germany, for Italy, uh, a lot of countries in the world whose populations have started to decline. And China's hasn't yet, but the expectation is in the next few years it will. And so how do you address the aging of your population? How do you pay for it? And that is one of the big challenges. Yeah, well, we can discuss that again in 2031 <laughs> after the next 10-year census. Look forward to that. Uh, moving quickly on to our final topic of the day, I'm going to get into the weeds of economic, hard uh, economic data here. My uh, wheelhouse. Don't, okay. don't turn off your, don't adjust your sets. This is, um, we're going to talk about uh, inflation, if that's not too, too dirty of a word to say on a, on a popular podcast like this. Um, two pieces of data which really uh, help tell a global story, John, um, in China, producer prices, that is the, the prices that factories and, and manufacturers are able to charge for their goods at the factory gate rose to their highest level for three years. Uh, and in the US overnight, we saw consumer prices, basically the, co- the cost of goods in the store to the every man on the street, rose by 4.2%, which is the highest since 2008. Yes, and this is, uh, uh, it is potentially a threat to the world economy. And this is, um, Let's take a look at the U.S. data first. It was the month-over-month increase of 0.2, or it was expected to be 0.2, but it was actually 0.8. So it was four times expectation, broad range of price increases across the economy. The 4.2% rate, which is more than double the Fed's 2% target for inflation, mm-hmm. is the highest since September of 2008, which, of course, is the month when Lehman Brothers went bust and the global financial crisis mm. started. So it's easy to jump to conclusions that this is the start of another problem. So Stock- just to really briefly for those unfamiliar, it means that last month goods were 4% more expensive than they were the previous, the, the same month last year. Right, in, and, and eight-tenths eight of a percent more expensive than they were last month. Yeah. Um, and this has been a worry for the uh, financial markets for months. And one of the reasons that U.S. bond yields went up earlier this year was concerns that inflation would rise, that all of the U.S. stimulus would push up prices and cause the Fed to raise rates sooner than expected and, and push put downward pressure on the U.S. economic recovery. Mm-hmm. The Fed has been denying this, saying, look, this is going to be these, you're going to see inflation go up, and it's temporary. It's due in part to base effects from the weak inflation last year. But that doesn't explain the month-over-month number, which is high, and the market uh, took it very badly and sold off yesterday. Yeah. This is the U.S. market, and I'm told the Chinese market is selling off today on the same reason. So this is um, essentially the Biden stimulus plan pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy, raises demand for goods, therefore the prices of the goods go up. Is it as simple as that, John? Uh, No, it's not. (laughs) And China plays a role in this um, because uh, one of the key drivers of the increase in prices is, is the rising global commodity prices, things like iron ore, copper, wheat, corn, other things. And part of the reason for that is demand from China. Uh, Let's take iron ore and steel prices as an example. Um, China makes more steel than the rest of the world combined. And their economic recovery has been driven by uh, a building boom, both of infrastructure and of housing, which created a lot of demand for steel, which created a lot of demand from iron ore. And so iron ore prices are now at at 
historic highs. Mm. And on Monday this week, more nearly 100 Chinese steel companies raised their prices. We have anecdotal evidence that this is already starting to affect uh, smaller companies. There is a notice from a company in Guangdong province, just north of Hong Kong here. It said, we've stopped taking orders because we can't make a profit on new orders anymore because raw material prices are so high. Mm -hmm. And so this affects the Chinese economy, which affects the global economy. If the U.S. economy slows down because of higher prices, because the Fed actually has to take uh, action to slow inflation, mm -hmm. that affects the global economy. And, of course, that mixes in with all the other issues going on, the COVID crisis in India. Now mm -hmm. Taiwan has a COVID outbreak uh, where they have up to now been immune to the uh, a pandemic. And yeah. what does this do to the world economy? It's uh, it, the, co the world economy is still fragile. The recovery is fragile. And mm -hmm. this is not a, a helpful sign. So just to, to sort of break this cycle down, you've got um, China, China has built and manufactured its way out of the coronavirus economic crisis. Um, demand for raw materials such as iron ore is so high, steel companies raising their prices. It's so expensive to buy the raw materials. One factory is saying it's not even worth making the stuff at all because the, the, the price they're going to get for it is not, not high enough. And then that filters through to the United States because the goods that factories or, or anyone in the United States are buying from China are so much more expensive. So it's a massive chain. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series of dominoes. It's only so long that Chinese companies cannot raise prices when their mar margins are being squeezed. And in, in, in the case of this one company, it's disappeared. Um, so in order to survive, uh, they have to raise prices. And then that is passed on to the consumer. Mm. Now, if Americans' consumers say we're not going to pay the high prices, then that cuts orders. Chinese exports fall. That affects the Chinese economy, etc. You know, mm. it's a series of dominoes. Yeah. And how does this get resolved? We don't know. So the hope would be, from the Fed's point of view, that this the steam comes out of this within a month. Not in a month. I mean, again, it's, it's from their point of view, it's uh, it's temporary effect that will. Uh, over time will gradually dissipate towards the end of the year. But you may see more surprising inflation numbers in the month to come. What's worrisome about the April CPI number published in the U.S. overnight is it was so much bigger than expected uh, that uh, now people have to redo their all their forecasts to say, what is the downstream effect of all of this? Mm -hmm. Uh, and we don't know. And is is the Fed, among other people, will the Fed have to revise their forecasts and their expectations? Just to add one more wrinkle to the story, where does all China's iron ore come from? Australia, yeah. well, 60%. 60% of it. And this is the, we, we've discussed on the podcast before, the trade conflict between China and Australia. Um, don't need to get into too much about the politics of it, but essentially China has banned a lot of Australian products, put tariffs on others, coal, yeah. Uh, you know, wheat, barley, all these sorts of uh, wine. Um, iron ore is the one that it hasn't uh, done anything to because it, there's a sense that it can't replace Australian there's, iron there's ore. Very, at this point, there is no substitution. The, the, the other main sources like Brazil has not been able to um, increase its production. And it's, of course, it's farther away. So it's, it takes longer to ship and more expensive to ship. And then the new mines in Africa have not come on stream. There are major logistical problems there. So China has no choice. If it wants the iron ore, it has to buy a good 
chunk of it from Australia. Now, one of the reasons that iron-ore prices spiked in the last couple of weeks is speculation that China, over time, because of this rapidly ex- escalating uh, conflict with Australia, that they would start to uh, push back on, on supplies of Australian iron ore. Uh, that would be a sea change in the uh, global uh, economic situation. That mm. would It would raise prices in China which it already has, but it potentially would lower prices in the rest of the world because there's more Australian supply to go to the United States or to Europe or to wherever it needs to go. Mm. So we'll have to wait and see. But For the U.S. consumer who's buying largely goods made in China, it could higher the, uh, spike yes, the prices. Again. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. This, yeah. is, this is all the vicious cycle. Yeah. And how do you get out of it? Um, it's unclear. It's unclear. Um, yeah, maybe we'll touch base in 2031 about that one too. <laughs> if we're still here. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, that's been educational. John Carter, thanks so much. You're welcome. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. You can hear my colleagues Joe Shin and Sydney Lung taking a deep dive into the latest China census in detail in this week's edition of the Inside China podcast hosted by Mimi Lau. On to something slightly different now. I'm going to be joined by two of our reporters, one from the China desk, one from the technology desk, Simone McCarthy and Masha Borak, who have been following different angles to the India COVID-19 story over the past week and how it is connected in many ways to China. Simone, just to set the scene a little bit, first of all, give us a, a, a quick update on the latest situation with regard to India's coronavirus outbreak and, and what it, what has happened with the, the relationship with China as a result of that. So it's certainly been an absolute catastrophe that we've seen, a deep tragedy in India. This month, there's been 350,000 new cases every day in India, and those are confirmed recorded cases. Um, so uh, one of the things that, I mean, we've all seen the the television footage with uh, hospitals being overburdened and, and supply shortage has really been a critical issue there. That's both with oxygen, ventilators, and also vaccines. So uh, right now, there's been and a tremendous amount of aid that's been coming in from around the world. And, I mean, if you scroll through the Twitter feed for the uh, India's Ministry of External Affairs, it's, it's um, you know, thank you to this government, thank you mm-hmm. to this government. What we haven't seen is that aid coming from the Chinese government. Um, there has been expressions of support at the highest level. Uh, President Xi Jinping at the end of April uh, released a statement of condolences and offering Chinese support for India. But so far, everything that we've seen has been commercial aid. I should say over the weekend, there was um, the Red Cross Society of China also sent a pretty large shipment. I think there was about 100 oxygen concentrators in there, something like that, 40 mm-hmm. ventilators. But... Obviously, uh, China is a manufacturing powerhouse. They've got a lot of these uh, factories that are making oxygen and different components for ventilators, oxygen concentrators. And so there has been a a significant level of commercial activity. And that's also been encouraged as well uh, from the Chinese side. You know, we we want to support our 
our companies from stepping up and helping. So I was chatting with some of the you know sales representatives who work on some of these platforms, which are like buyer to buyer, and they were saying like they've seen hun- this was at the end of April, and they were seeing already at that time hundreds of um, requests and just a huge influx for these kinds of products. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's more to it than commercial relations here. Obviously, there's a lot of politics between India and China. A couple of weeks ago, we had Sarah Jung on the podcast who described the situation where um, China had hosted a forum of South Asian nations and was offering uh, COVID, uh, PPE, medical goods and all this sort of stuff. But India wasn't at the table. Now, has that evolved or is it still the politics which is stopping uh, China from providing these equipment to India? Well, I mean, certainly we're not in the room in these meetings behind closed doors and, uh, you know, listening in on the phone conversations. But uh, reading between the lines, we've seen so much government to government aid pouring into India, and we just have not seen that. And of course, the backdrop here is the border tensions, which erupted into you know, a deadly conflict last summer and then have continued to simmer. Um, and so I think there's also a lot of skepticism between the two sides. China has obviously faced a lot of backlash for its so-called mask diplomacy. Um, Some Indian analysts have also drawn up comments about kind of a sense of skepticism in India Mm -hmm. about exactly what China's aims may be in trying to provide aid there. So thus far, it's really been on the commercial side. Yeah, you you haven't been in these closed door meetings, but you were involved in an interview this week with the Indian Consul General in Hong Kong, Priyanka Chauhan, this week. Um, what did she have to say about this situation? Did she give you any insights as to how things are operating at the political level? Yeah, you know, it was a really interesting conversation and we were we were grateful to her for the time because I think they're incredibly busy right now. I mean, as I mentioned, because of the commercial dynamic, one of the things that the consulate here in Hong Kong and, and also their their counterparts over on the mainland have been doing is like helping to connect those buyers in India with suppliers in China. So they're drawing up lists of reliable sources that buyers can can turn to and have been helping, you know, trying to coordinate with Um, you know, with the Hong Kong government keeping cargo flights open and this kind of thing. But, I mean, she was very, she was really calling on the Chinese government to do as much as they could in order to facilitate that. I mean, one of the things as we've been doing reporting, uh, both here in Hong Kong and our our team in Beijing have been doing reporting about some of the supply constraints and the issues on the supply chain. And there's been price increases for medical supplies. Um, There also has been uh, a decrease in the number of cargo flights. For Mm -hmm. example, we saw... um, Last month, the uh, Sichuan Airlines just canceled flights. And then that actually was something that was negotiated between the foreign ministers of Mm -hmm. China and India. So as we learned during that conversation, um, those flights haven't reached their pre-crisis capacity. And so she was really calling for the Chinese government to the extent that it can to Keep those supply lines open. Make mm. sure that there, that these kinds of delays or uh, price jumps aren't hampering India's response. Yeah. So what's your sense here? Because you've got the Indian CG in Hong Kong asking China to do more. You have no aid, really, government to government going from China to India. It, does India want Chinese aid? Does China not want to give India aid? Or where does the truth lie in this situation? Well, one of the things that Consul General Chohan said yesterday was that if there was a better mechanism, 
And I think she was implying government-to-government coordination, more aid perhaps, um, that the Indian side would be open to discussing it. So you've got the Indian Consul General in Hong Kong asking China to do what it can. You've got, by statistics, it seems very little government-to-government aid flowing from China to India. Where does the truth lie? Is is India stopping this or is China stopping this? Or is this just like a, two political rivals refusing to, to yield any ground? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely is a matter of looking at the context here. And we've seen a really tense situation between these two countries. And that, that that's certainly not just related to this one border conflict, but it's spilled over into lots of other areas. And so I think that's what we really need to think about when we consider what exactly is going on between these two countries when it comes to aiding this tremendous crisis. Yeah, yeah. Masha, I'm going to bring you in here. Um, you've been covering from the tech point of view a number of the issues going on between India and China. Obviously, there's a World Trade Organization case pending where in, uh, China is suing India for, I think, banning certain uh, Chinese apps from the app stores. Um, you've also got the situation with uh, large manufacturers trying to move some of their supply chains from China to India. We can get into that a little bit later. Um, but from a technology point of view, first of all, Masha, on the apps point of view, is that something which is, um, which is still going on? Is that still an ongoing argument between the pair? Yes, this argument has still continued. Uh, although when I talk to analysts on the ground, uh, I think uh, a lot of attention is now uh, on internal problems less than external problems. So I think uh, these uh Tensions in the tech area with the apps, uh, they're kind of uh, fallen into the background Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, that's fair enough. I can totally understand why that would be the case. Now, the big story a couple of years ago was about supply chains moving out of China. We wrote a lot of stories about them moving to Vietnam. After that, more companies started looking at India. Um, I know a couple of people who who have been trying to do this for a number of years and they've complained a lot about um, uh, the infrastructure, the bureaucracy, uh, the quality of uh, the labour force and so on in India. But one of the the companies you've been covering this week, Masha, is Apple, uh, which of course was was one of the trendsetters in moving uh, part of its supply chain from China to India. Obviously, that's run into some challenges at the moment. Uh, What impact has the COVID outbreak in India had on these plans, Masha? Uh, Well, analysts on the ground have told us that uh, the Indian government is not going to shut down manufacturing or supply and logistics. So it's in much better shape than the first time that COVID hit when everyone in the world were completely taken aback and unprepared. So right now, the, the factories themselves are much better prepared uh, but there, there has been problems. So like in the Foxconn plant uh, that makes iPhones, the productions have halved, according to media reports. So this factory is located in Tamil Nadu. It's one of the worst hit states in India. Mm-hmm. And another supplier for iPhone called Winstrand, they also had to shut down their plan for five days. And it's not just Apple, of course. Other smartphone makers are also impacted. Yeah, we talked with John Carter in the first part of the show about how um, raw material fluctuations, commodity prices are, are really going to jack up consumer prices, perhaps make iPhones more expensive in the United States, and, and so on. Are you are you seeing this, Masha, as the very beginning of of, of something similar happening? You know, with with uh, the interruption in manufacturing in India, uh, albeit this is of course not the primary concern about India's uh, huge humanitarian crisis, but is this something you really see maybe throwing a spanner in the works of the global supply chain? Yes, the trouble is that there could be more waves of. COVID 
COVID, they could, there could be more different strains of COVID. And, you know, there are lockdowns happening in different parts of the country. So uh, as we've heard, uh, this may affect production well into September. We've heard from Simone about the problems in getting PPE, ventilators, oxygen, stuff like that from China into India. Uh, Simone, I just wanted to ask you about vaccine production. Obviously, India is a manufacturing powerhouse in its own right, as we've heard from Masha. Um, It's a pharmaceutical powerhouse as well. So what's the status of vaccine production and distribution in India at this time? Well, I mean, just as Masha was describing that as the situation has intensified and the crisis has deepened in India, there's we see knock on effects for the rest of the world. And that's that's certainly been the case with global vaccine supply. Um, The Serum Institute of India was one of the sort of headliners for the WHO backed campaign to vaccinate the world and have equitable access for the poorest countries and, and richer countries who wanted to join in alike. And so. Since the crisis has ticked up in India, those exports have stopped. Um, There was supposed to be about 240 million doses um, that were largely, largely from uh, the Serum Institute of India going out to, I think, around 140 countries globally by the end of March. And the last that I looked at the figures, only about 55 million doses had gone out altogether, and that's including from other providers. So it's it's absolutely crippled those those global efforts. And there are assurances from the Indian side that as soon as their crisis gets under control domestically, um, they will lift the export controls that they have now and continue to vaccinate the world. Mm. But that's certainly not happening right now. And the crisis has... Uh, We've seen the daily cases have started to drop, but they're still extremely high. Definitely, we are nowhere close to saying that India is out of the woods. Yeah, it's going to be one that's going to roll and roll. We will hear more from this on the tech desk from Masha on how this is affecting supply chains, I'm sure. Simone will be on the beat of vaccinations and stuff like that. But for now, Simone, Masha, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's China Geopolitics podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, coming at you from the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. We'll be back next week around the same time. Until then, take care, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask, you know the drill. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.